2: The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic. I'm publisher of the Climactic Collective, Mark Spencer, and today I'm bringing you something very, very cool. The first episode of season two of Hypecast. Now this is a podcast put together by the Hype, which is a building consultancy, uh, a really overall cool company, Uh, a company sort of... Made up of people in traditional building industries, but who kind of like Voltron, combine their abilities and their talents and their skill sets in order to do really cool things. And I don't think any other company that I am aware of is kind of doing at scale. Hippie Hype has done some really cool collaborative building and um, net zero building and just sort of futuristic building, like kind of how the building industry should be projects around Melbourne and now that their expertise has kind of been cemented they do a lot of consulting for councils all around Australia. I think they've been involved in projects outside of Australia as well. Um, Hip V Hype is always going to have a very special place in my heart personally because they were the first social enterprise and the first kind of company to take up podcasting as part of the Climactic Collective and it's been so cool having them throughout their first season as they talked about the future of building about ways to reform the building codes, about overlays and working with councils, and it was really the the rubber-hits-the-road conversations. I learned so much and was so encouraged by people who want to do good, people who want to do better, talking about how they actually are, how they're getting it done. So I'm so excited to have Season 2, Episode 1, to share with you now, and it's an interview, of course, with the one and only Zally Stegall, independent member, for Warringah in Sydney. It's very special, as there's two Winter Olympians on the call. One definitely learned a lot and was inspired by the other, so uh, look out for that. And now, over to Laura Phillips to introduce the episode. Enjoy.
1: One of the major push is that all developments no longer have an automatic gas connection that it's actually an elective that people have to pay extra for so that it's a disincentive for having it new construction should have solar panels battery water tanks no gas you know we should have fully climate resilient buildings going up
3: i'm laura phillips and you're listening to a podcast by hip v hype where we discuss new ideas around housing sustainability and climate action to explore ways to support the sustainable growth of our cities and regions we respectfully acknowledge that Hypecast is recorded on traditional Aboriginal lands, which have been sustained for thousands of years. We honour their ongoing connection to these lands and seek to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians. Ever since Sally Stegall won the Sydney seat of Ringa as an independent candidate in the 2019 election, she has been a force for change in our federal parliament. Championing legislation on the climate action, parliamentary integrity, and recently, an amendment to the Sex Discrimination Act, she has demonstrated refreshing leadership and transparency in Canberra. Zali is also a former world slalom champion and four time Winter Olympic athlete. She is Australia's most internationally successful alpine skier, winning a bronze medal in slalom in 1998 Winter Olympics in Nagano and a world championship gold medal in 1999. She is Australia's first individual medalist in a Winter Olympics and Australia's only medalist in alpine skiing. Today, I sit down with Zali Stegel and Kati Kremer, Director of Projects at Hip Hype, who herself is also a two-time Winter Olympian, to discuss climate action and their shared paths as Olympic winter athletes.
0: Thanks for that intro, Laura, and thank you, Zali, so much for joining us. Just to set a bit of context for our listeners, you were a huge role model of mine growing up as a young athlete. I still have a signed postcard from yourself written when I was about 12 years old saying, see you at the Olympics one day. And that lived on my corkboard behind my desk for a long time. And I'm sure you were a, a huge role model for, for many young aspiring female athletes across all sports, summer and winter. And you continue to be a role model today in a completely different field. So thank you. (laughs) Can you you talk to us a little bit about your journey from being a successful Winter Olympic skier into an independent federal uh, member of parliament?
1: Well, thank you, Katya, for that. I think maybe the overarching lesson I learned from sport was always, you know, you've got to dream big, you've got to set those big goals and then don't ever let anyone tell you that they're not achievable. You've really got to break them down and work out how to do it yourself. You know, if you can see it, you can be it is often very much the case. So back in my day, I I was quite inspired by Reni Schneider, who was a Swiss skier, but also Lisa Koberger, who um, skied for New Zealand. So I'm really glad that it was able to be pass on that maybe inspiration and, and help you know, in a small way. I'm so glad that your career went the way it did as well. For me, I guess, though, this career in politics, I still can't quite see myself as a politician. I see myself as more of a sports person, lawyer, taking on the establishment of politics because we need to clean it up. But it is that same attitude of you've got to be prepared to step up, identify what it is that you hope to achieve or what the problem is, and then how can it Be fixed, and what can you do about it? And don't ever let yourself be intimidated. By the task ahead but also you know fear of failure people really hold back often because they're, they're afraid that it may not work out and for me that's you know what's the worst that can happen is what I always think and I think that comes from the years of skiing you had especially between Olympic Games you have 50 seconds on a slalom course and four years to train for it so uh, it's a long time to wait to get it right and I didn't always get it right you know, but I was lucky enough that on a couple of days it all came together. And to me that just really showed that working hard, perseverance, having a plan and really backing yourself is important. And, and I think in politics that's a key part, especially independent politics, you have to back yourself. You have to trust in your own ability, your team around you, but don't let the negative voices and the trolls, you trolls know, get to you. For me that negative side of politics, the really critical side of politics it's a bit more like water off a duck's back. I'm not really fussed with all those kind of negative voices out there.
0: It's interesting that you say 50 seconds between four year cycles. It's quite amazing, isn't it? It's, it really is a pressure cooker. And I guess what I learned through that experience, my event was slightly longer about a minute 20 ski cross. (laughs) Um, And if you're lucky enough, you got to do repetitive uh, rounds It really is about kind of how do you harness that energy and funnel it into something. And I can imagine there's a lot of synergy there between that four-year cycle and funneling that energy into 50 seconds and what you're doing now. Um, It's also,
1: you know, seeing the positives and also worry about what you can control. There's a lot of things that are beyond your control and a lot of people get caught up in that. For me, it was always about focus on what you can control. Do what you can control to 110% of your ability And the rest will take care of itself.
0: I have this experience. I I first started travelling overseas when I was about uh, 12 years old. And I had this Slovakian ski coach who was an ex-slalom skier, actually, Ivan Pachak. And we were in Hintertooks, where I'm sure you've been in Austria, on on an early training camp. It would have been uh, late October, so pre-winter and it was it was one of my first or trips to Europe actually, and we were travelling up the gondola and Ivan was telling me that back in his day when he was training the the glacier would start right down at the base of the gondola, and we were heading up this gondola it 's about a twenty minute gondola ride, and when we got to the top, the glacier still hadn 't started, so we could i guess I could really see the the retreat of this glacier over twenty years it would, would be less than twenty years. And for me, that was a really tangible connection to, the, to, to climate change and how that impacted on, on my day-to-day life and hearing that experience of my coach Ivan and just how the mountains had transformed over such a short period of time. So I'm interested, was there a particular moment in your earlier career as a skier that prompted you to pursue climate action?
1: Look, as a skier, I was always—I was definitely aware of it. If you think back, I mean, it's—you know—it's been evolving over the years, and the facts and the science have come to the fore more of recent of recent date. But I do distinctly remember being on glaciers in Switzerland and Austria, where it was receding. The number of hot days were increasing, and, and, and it really was a major concern. And you had stories in the news about discoveries on the glaciers because so much of it was melting. But for me, it's been a growing concern that we have so much science and so much facts and experts in their field who spend their life studying these issues who are coming out with really sound advice and really you know very important warnings for us as a society and i've i found it more and more just frustrating that personal gain i think greed and corruption getting in the way of accepting those facts and actually acting upon them Uh, and to draw an an analogy to being as an athlete you know if you lose a race or you're you're not getting the best performance and your coach and the people that have observed you tell you, hey, you really need to tweak this. You know, maybe it's your equipment, maybe it's your technique or your line down the course. Whatever it is, feedback is really good and pivoting and adapting your performance is really important so that you can become better and and win the next race. And the frustrating thing I have with Australian politics is it's very entrenched and they are unable to really review their position take on board new facts and evidence that we have, and that is around climate change, it is just compelling, and actually move forward to be more efficient, to be better at this. Instead, it's this entrenched position in insistence on continuing to be political about it, make it a very adversarial situation around this issue, it has been positioned as a question of belief in climate change. This is not a question of faith or belief. This is science. These are facts. You you know, it's not a question. The question is then how do you move forward? What are the things you can do? And there are really clear examples around the world of what policies and legislations can make a difference. And that's what I'm really trying to bring to the parliament is... I would argue a very sensible, uh, pragmatic approach of how do we bring everyone on board of Australian society for practical solutions for where we can take care of communities, bring everyone on board and transition to what we need to do, which is low emission technologies. Now, It just, it is baffling sometimes to listen to the debate and hear still so many people having been unable to progress to the facts and to the science and to the warnings that we need to take care of.
0: It's interesting you say that about getting communities on board. Jeremy Jones, who I'm sure you're um, familiar with, the founder of Protect Our Winters, has a really kind of citizen-led approach and he's seeking athletes or, or people who are involved, I guess, in winter sports to really come together and pursue action together. And we as a business talk a lot about spending more time in nature to better understand what we're seeking to protect. He's got this classic quote, to inspire people to get outside, you've got to first get out into nature, to fall in love with nature, to then want to want to protect it. It's clear that the time that you spent in the mountains has had a strong impact on what you're doing today. Does it continue to inspire you getting out into nature and having that tangible, relatable experience with the environment? And is it something that you try to encourage others to do?
1: Absolutely. I think there's nothing more magical than being on the mountains. You know, crisp early morning, sunrise over snow peaks is really phenomenal. And I think it's a very grounding experience where you really sort of get back to basics and you take a deep breath and you, you pause for a moment because we all live such hectic lives where you're cramming as much in as you possibly can and and i think it is important sometimes to step out and take a moment to actually enjoy the environment you're in now northern beaches sydney i think we're incredibly privileged this is an area that is so beautiful and we have so much available to us but it it counts for nothing if we don't appreciate it and we don't conserve it and take care of it so Mm. we do have to get out there so my I've gotten a bit older. So my hobby, my my passion now is actually trail running because it allows me to get out into the bush and I've done some trail runs in the mountains in Europe and here in Australia a lot. And I do ultras, so 50 kilometres, 100 kilometres. So you're out there for many hours and you have a lot of time to really appreciate the environment, the beauty of it, and there's some amazing moments that can really catch you. And for me, they just charge up my batteries because whenever I'm getting frustrated at the slowness or the government, you know, the Prime Minister and the government being obstinate about not embracing change better, having those moments where you really are reminded of how important this is and this is not something we will ever quit and this is not something going away. So this is just a question of pausing, recharge the batteries and finding the new approach and the new angle to keep putting pressure. So definitely getting out in nature, I think, is an important part of knowing what we've got and properly appreciating it.
0: I'm just going to veer the the topic a little bit and relate it a little bit more to what we do in, in construction and property and housing. You know, women in the construction industry is still very underrepresented. And I think one of the, the last polls was around 12%. I think it's one of the lowest represented industries for females. You're obviously a very strong advocate for women in politics and in positions of leadership. And I'm really interested, what made you decide to throw your hat in the ring into federal politics?
1: Well, look, I guess it was a combination of factors. I do feel strongly that we need more women in politics. We need our political um, arena. The parliament needs to reflect society, so it needs to have a better gender equity, but it also needs more diversity, cultural diversity, I think. For me, look, I've never let that intimidate me, so I was definitely keen to put myself up as a choice for the electorate for a different style of representation. I think... It, Again, the Australian Parliament, the culture in Parliament is, I would say, about 20 years behind the corporate sector. So, Katya, you may talk, you know, the, the construction and property sector is probably still a very male-dominated world. Look, the legal fraternity was a fairly male-dominated as well. But I would say most of the commercial sector has a adapted and adjusted mm. in ways that the political arena hasn't there is still in canberra a culture of uh, i would say it's a toxic masculinity in the sense that there's an entire there's an air of entitlement and people you know people behaving in ways where they feel untouchable um, and that's got to change we absolutely have to call that out there's also been a really interesting uh, thing that i've Really, come to appreciate is this idea that what goes on in, on tour stays on tour. Now, athletes are familiar with that because the idea that you're on the road, you may not behave on the road as you would at home, and so you know, should leniency be shown by the media about those events? And what's happened in Canberra is this bubble situation where people have been aware of, of members of parliament and staff behaving badly for a long time, but they have not told that story there has been this attitude of don't ask don't tell and there's been an attitude of what goes on tour stays on tour and that's got to stop because you're not going to clean the place up you're not going to improve the standards if you keep it behind closed doors so a big goal of mine and I'm probably not making any friends in Canberra this way but is to pull back the curtain we need People around Australia that are working hard, that are complying with rules, that are, you know, doing, working within industries that are progressing need to know what is going on in Parliament and what is going on Amongst the people that are making the very laws that control everyone else's lives and yet are behaving in ways that are disrespectful of those very same laws. So that's got to change. I do believe numbers makes a difference. So more women you have, the more you balance out the conversation. I think women bring something different to the table, uh, are more willing to look at different positions on issues. It's not so polarised and more willing to come collaboratively to the table to find solutions rather than just the partisan side of politics so numbers is important but we need women in chief advisor roles we need women in chief of staff we need women MPs we need heads of departments we need across all levels of government and decision making.
3: Building upon that Zalia so much of what you've mentioned I think speaks really well to this position of entrenchment and you've characterised the politics of, of climate change as, as being quite you know, obstinate, unable to review position in the face of compelling evidence, as you say. Do you think there's an air of that changing, particularly in, in relation to climate change? Obviously, you know, yourself and other independents are certainly kind of trying to, to provide a different type of representation one that really focuses on transparency and science-based evidence. I
1: think it is changing because people have more ability to be informed. So traditionally you relied on traditional media, media is very, ownership is very polarized in Australia. And so the major parties had an advantage in terms of controlling the message and what information was available to the public when they vote every three years. What we have now is access to information has multiplied in the last 5 years through social media in a way that is just phenomenal and yes there is a dark side to the web and there are we do need some controls around certain aspects but what it's done is it's opened up communication. So for me as an independent, it would have been incredibly hard to get my message out against an incumbent controlling most of the traditional media. But you're able with social media to, to communicate directly to the electorate and inform them on really important issues. So I think it's changing. And what we've seen is that every election, the primary vote of the major parties keeps dropping, which means people are not automatically identifying with major parties and are being more uh, selective they are looking at issues they're more informed and they're able to really choose more wisely and so then the more we can offer choice so more good candidates uh, step forward and I would strongly encourage professional women out there to consider a career in politics it is fun I like it but this this is not all about negativity this is really constructive you have a really good sense of giving back to the community but also being part of really important discussions for the future so it's moving and I think it is moving in an accelerating pace because of the information people
3: have access to. In terms of that constructive pragmatism that, that you've spoken to, there obviously has been a lack of, of credible climate change policy at a federal level for quite some time. Speaking to, to your bill, how do you see a legislative carbon emissions reduction target as, as the best way forward past this kind of position of obstinance?
1: Yeah, look, for me, looking at climate change, is it's clearly been so polarised in Australia. We've had ten years of just completely dysfunctional party politics, and emphasised and amplified by the media. So for me, I after the election, it was very much about well, where do we put the sensible voice? What other jurisdictions, what other countries have done it better than us? And uh, the UK stood out because it is a conservative government, and they elected to pass the climate change act back in 2008 they passed it with bipartisan support and it has been their insurance policy for stable climate policy and progress on emission reduction despite big upheavals. so they've had 10 years of Brexit and now COVID and, and many changes of Prime Ministers as well and yet their climate policy has stayed on track and their commitment currently is 68% reductions by 2030. Now that compared to our 26 to 28% is quite telling so I think it's very important through the climate change uh, bills that we legislate our ambition so net zero by 2050 has to be our line in the sand we cannot go past that five-year emission reduction budgets so that we take Planning around emissions out of a three year election cycle, and we put it into five year emission budgets, which gives business certainty because at any one time you have two budgets in play and they know what technologies and what is being focused on for the next 10 to 15 years in play. And we need the risk assessment and the adaptation planning where we're really exposed, especially around construction and property, actually, because when you look at construction and property, you're making decisions for 20, 30 years' time. Now, If we don't have clear climate policy on where we're heading from an emission reduction, that makes it very difficult to plan buildings, the standards buildings need to be at, to be relevant in 20, 30 years' time. So it's really important to have that long-term plan. The bills have received huge support and so they went to inquiry to allow for that public discussion of what is needed. We had over six and a half thousand submissions, the planning institute, architects, builders, you know, local government, BCA, industry groups, sorry, medical association, everyone agrees this is the way forward. We need to legislate net zero and a clear pathway. The next step obviously will be the report from the committee will come back to Parliament probably mid to late May. Now, this is a committee that is a majority coalition members, so they are in a tight spot. They've had overwhelming evidence in support of the bills but obviously politically they are going to be stuck but it's really important to be frank about the evidence we've received and where the you know what the priorities are. After that it will be a matter of considering maybe some amendments that have been proposed by different uh, groups and Really pushing the government to get it to a vote, to get it to debate. Now, we've seen with the Earth Summit, Australia is way behind. The pressure is building on the Australian government, both internationally and domestically, that we have to have a more ambitious, uh, a more realistic goal of emissions reduction. We are facing very real prospects of carbon border tariffs on our exports, and that will really harm agriculture and, and our exports. So, this is the simple way forward. It allows for uh, accountability across all our sectors, you know, from energy to transport, to agriculture, to construction, to all the different areas. It allows for us to balance out the sectors that will be able to move faster than others and plan it in a equitable way. So we need to do it equitably in terms of generations. We can't leave this to the next generation to fix. We have to do it now. We have to do it fiscally responsibly. It is cheaper to do it now than it is to do it in 20 years' time. And the cost of impacts is escalating. And we need to do it in a planned way so that communities can adapt. We have communities that are going to have major transition around their employment sector, and they need to have a plan of knowing what, in the next five to ten years, the opportunities and transition looks like for their community so that's what the bill does it puts that blueprint in I think one witness described it as a north star so there you go and so I will continue to engage with the government about putting in place the plan that everyone is calling for
3: As you say, it's pretty comprehensive and everyone is obviously um, going to be vulnerable to the effects of climate change and to a certain degree be affected by this major transition that will happen. So how can listeners of this podcast support the progress of the climate change bill within their own electorates?
1: Look, really important that you raise it with your MP. Uh, If there's one thing I've learned is that MPs care about being re-elected. They care about their job they 're selfish, so really go and talk about it with your MP ask you know and dig deeper than the initial response so i 've had many people share with me the standard responses they get from their MPs where they 're raising really bogus excuses for why not, and they give you the party line and just the the absolute rubbish. You have to push past that and ask for more than that and Put them on notice that if they can't provide a better answer or engage individually on this issue, talk about it with your friends, talk about it with your family. For every one person that speaks to five people, if those five people speak to another five, you create a movement and you really do change things. People in Parliament get elected by 500 votes sometimes. So if you can move 500 votes, you make a difference. So, writing to your MP, calling your MP—it's really important to do it in person. Write to your local newspaper, call your local radio station, get involved, call out the mistruth, lies when you see them. You know, it's really important that we don't let. things that are not correct remain on the record they have to be called out and that takes all of us we all have that responsibility to call things out obviously you can go to climateactnow.com.au the website for the bill to try and gather support around the country and we've had great um great support from every electorate in Australia is behind it get involved in your local politics. Go and put pressure on your local government, put pressure on your state government member and then your federal member. Again, they are only in the job to represent you. So make sure they're doing that. What can you do around climate change? The UN have found two-thirds of global emissions are consumer-driven. Two-thirds, 60% of global emissions are consumer-driven. So whether that's through your vote or through your finance, who do you bank with, what's their policy, what cars do you drive, do you offset? You know, not everyone's in a position to change what they have, but through organisations like Greenfleet, you can offset your impact of your vehicle, your household, your car for not ridiculous amounts of money. Your choices, plastics, all the choices we make in our day-to-day
3: life matter. Mm. it's a good reminder. Well, thank you so much, Sally. We really appreciate your time today. And thank you so much for your frank and fearless leadership push for transparency. We're very lucky to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hypecast. If you're listening in on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and take a moment to leave a review.